It's the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service for Thursday, August 13, 2020. On today's episode, TV movie librarian Stephen Tomlinson is here to discuss the rise and fall of the Warner Brothers. If you're listening to this in your podcast player, you can look for episode 78 of the Code St. Luke podcast, which aired on July 16, 2020, and you'll find part one of Stephen's talk. On this day in history, August 13, 1961, East German soldiers began the work over the night of August 12 and 13 of laying more than 100 miles of barbed wire slightly inside the East Berlin border. The communist leader of East Germany, Walter Ulbricht, got the go-ahead from the Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev to begin the sealing off of all access between East and West Berlin. From about 1948 to 1961, between around 2.5 million to 3 million citizens of East Germany headed to West Germany in search of better opportunities. By 1961, about 1,000 East Germans were leaving every day, including many skilled laborers, professionals, and intellectuals. It's often forgotten that the Berlin Wall was not built to keep people out, but to keep people in. The wall eventually came down, as you know, on November 9, 1989, a little more than 28 years later. Now, just to put 28 years in context, more time has passed between the fall of the Berlin Wall and today than the total amount of time that the Berlin Wall was up. That was This Day in History. Here is Stephen Tomlinson to talk about the Warner Brothers. Hello, everyone. It's Stephen Tomlinson of the Code St. Luke Public Library. Uh, today, I'm recording this uh, outside. It's just uh, too warm to be indoors. So please forgive me for any uh, extraneous noise that you might hear. Yes, today I'll be concluding the second in my two-part series, The Rise and Fall of the Brothers Warner, by which I mean the Warner Brothers, the four brothers who created the movie studio that, for several decades, has continued to bear their name and one that has left us with so many great movies from Hollywood's golden age of the 1930s and the 1940s. Movies like The Maltese Falcon, Yankee Doodle Dandy, and Casablanca. But really, so so many, so many more. In part one, I covered the early years of the four Jewish brothers, Sam, Harry, Albert, and Jack, who created Warner Brothers after emigrating to the United States from Poland. Uh, This was in the late 19th century, the very late 19th century. Uh, Not long after they arrived, uh, the father of the family decided to change the name from Wanskalasser to Warner. I also discussed in part one how, uh, conditioned by life uh, in the Polish ghetto, the Warners were renowned, even among their emigrant neighbors, for their family solidarity and uh, very hard work. I mentioned how the family began as theatrical exhibitors in Ohio, in Ohio and only began producing their own movies after being shut out of film distribution by the Edison Trust in the 1910s, which ultimately forced them to relocate to California and to the then-fledgling town of Hollywood by the end of that decade. And I ended part one with a discussion of how Warner's had become a complete film company by the mid-twenties before gambling everything on the introduction of a revolutionary new technical advancement. The introduction of recorded sound in 1927's The Jazz Singer. 
But though it was a great success, Sam, the brother most significantly behind that success, died just days before the release of the film. Despite that loss, with the introduction of sound, Warner Brothers really found its voice, so to speak, leveraging its newfound wealth and status into the forefront of Hollywood filmmaking for at least the next two, really three decades, in which they made so many great gangster films, pirate movies, biopics, westerns, musicals, the Looney Tunes cartoons with Bugs Bunny, and uh, so many, so many others. You know, one thing you'll notice if you watch enough Warner's films of the 30s and 40s is that the studio is that the studio's leading actors, um, with the obvious exceptions of Errol Flynn and Olivia de Havilland, really weren't all that good-looking. Whereas other studios of the era, uh, Paramount, MGM, they had stars with, you know, flawless features, perfectly proportioned for the grandeur of a 50-foot uh, movie screen. Whereas Warner stars, um, by comparison... They, they often matched, however cool they were, they often matched the relatively bleak settings of uh, their movies in, in this era. I'm thinking here of such actors as Humphrey Bogart, George Raft, Edward G. Robinson, Paul Mooney, John Garfield, Jimmy Cagney. Um, these were actors... Aside from Bogart, who came from something of an upper-middle-class background, these were actors who were all seemingly hardened by the realities of the Great Depression and certainly the characters that they played in, in, in those Warner's movies of the early 30s especially reflected that. The women, the actresses uh, at Warner's, they were, they were equally tough as well and sometimes even more so than their male counterparts. <laughs> I'm thinking of uh, Joan Crawford, for certain. Uh, Betty Davis was pretty tough. Um, Ida Lupino, for sure. Um, and later on, Lauren Bacall, as well. Now, realizing that they couldn't match their competitors in terms of looks, Warner Brothers set out to build up their writing department. And I'm going to uh, quote screenwriter Jerry Wald here. I remember distinctly being called in once and being told that we could not compete with MGM and their tremendous stable of stars. So we had to go after the stories. Quote, unquote. Now, maybe for this reason, Warner's movies, at least in my view, tend to date, tend to age a little better than pictures coming out of just about any other studio from that time. What they had... If they didn't quite have the same magnitude of uh, stardom, they did have strong stories. And if their stars weren't as good-looking as the ones at MGM or Paramount, they were, for the most part, better actors. Another thing about Warner Brothers is that it was the most contemporary, the most socially relevant of all the Hollywood studios. Its movies were gritty, fast-paced, urban, wised up, as they used to say, thanks in no small part to head of production Daryl Zanuck. Um, so many of the movies of the early Depression years, when uh, Zanuck was there as head of production, um, 
really provide a lean, hard look at life. And I'm thinking of the gangster films, The Public Enemy, Little Caesar, and Scarface, all of which came out in the first two or three years of the 1930s. Um, these, these were movies that were a kind of reflection of the urban poor and working class that you certainly wouldn't have gotten in the musicals at MGM and uh, elsewhere, by example. They were gritty, they were tough, and they remain among the least, least dated of all old movies. And at least for me, as enjoyable today as I would think they were, well, they certainly were when they first came out. But maybe the best thing about Warner's movies of the 1930s and the 1940s was that they often made you feel virtuous. While MGM and Paramount allowed you to dream away your troubles, Warner's was, for example, the first studio to come out against Hitler, long before America's entrance into World War II. And they gave the world films with a, a social conscience. Movies like I Am a Fugitive from a Chain Gang in 1932, about the cruelties of the southern prison system. Black Legion in 1937, about the evils of the Ku Klux Klan. And Confessions of a Nazi Spy in 1939, about the dangers posed by the rise of fascism in Europe. These just were not movies that other studios were making at the time in Hollywood. Uh, to look at, at, at just one of those films, Confessions of a Nazi Spy, um, it was based on the personal experiences of retired FBI agent Leon G. Turo, played in the movie by Edward G. Robinson. Um, Turo, the FBI agent, had busted a Nazi espionage ring operating in the United States in 1938, and this, is, uh, this becomes the basis for the plot of the movie which uh, actually uses newsreel footage um, that includes Hitler haranguing his brown shirt followers, uh, which is very unusual for a Hollywood film of the time. And so Confessions has a kind of uh, quasi-documentary feel to it, which is also very unlike the typical studio product of the era. Unbelievably, today, the New York Times reviewer Frank Nugent criticized Warner Brothers at that time for making the Nazis, and I quote here, too villainous. Nugent, like most Americans, however, soon realized it was not possible to make the Nazis too villainous. But in retrospect, I think it's fair to say that Warner Brothers helped America come to that very realization at a time when the country was divided about getting involved in what many at that time regarded as a European problem. Now, what accounts for the many socially conscious movies that Warner Brothers made in the 30s and 40s? Well. Studio president Harry Warner seems to have genuinely believed that, that the Hollywood studios had a duty to society and not just their shareholders. He, um, he said in 1937 at a, uh, at a public speech, and I'm going to quote, and quote it here, I quote a portion of it here. He said that the men and women who make a nation's entertainment have obligations above and beyond their primary commercial objective, which is the box office. 
we can and should give a helping hand to the cause of good government and fair play. I think we are making an honest effort to use the screen's influence for the greatest general good of humanity, and I am proud that my company has had some part in this." End quote. Now, that's a very interesting statement, and one almost impossible to imagine an equivalent executive making today in 2020. In the 1930s, Warner Brothers effectively became the studio to go to for, um, for social critique, which was always a very risky position to hold under the old Hayes Production Code. Uh, the old Hayes Production Code was something that mandated what movies could and could not get away with, and it was it was pretty strict. Uh, and it wasn't just about violence, on-screen violence, restricting that. It was also about so-called uh, indecency. Um, and uh, the studios were not even allowed to criticize the U.S. government in any way, or basically many of the country's institutions, like that of the Catholic Church, for sure. Now, this socially conscious sentiment at Warner's, I think it partly derived from the significant number of New York playwrights um, who were working at the studio. Um, certainly they brought with them to Hollywood from New York um, a certain social commentary that had been established on the East Coast stage, and also a degree of, of verisimilitude, a kind of um, a liking for reality, or at least a desire to present a kind of social authenticity that was not otherwise uh, seen much in Hollywood. You know, there are many, many such films that speak out in this period against all manner of injustices, but one of the most significant was Warner Brothers' first Oscar winner for Best Picture, and that is The Life of Emile Zola, starring Paul Mooney, and made in 1937. It was, in large part, an indictment of anti-Semitism and, by extension, really, fascist oppression, though there is only one brief unspoken reference made to the Jewishness at the center of the Dreyfus Affair, which, of course, is the central story depicted in the movie. Hard to believe, yes, but that that is how things worked. Um, the, the studio heads, not just at Warner's, but at, at most of the other studios in Hollywood, were Jewish and were a little wary of calling attention to that fact. So they, they, they couched whatever critiques of anti-Semitism in their films in a very, very often kind of roundabout, not too direct sort of way. Um, so yeah, I think I think that oversight is perhaps indicative of a fear that the Hollywood studios um, had of a had of a domestic anti-Semitic backlash to their movies and and the people who made them. Another such film is Dr. Ehrlich's Magic Bullet from 1940, which is a biopic, also starring Paul Mooney, uh, but in this case about the German Jewish doctor Paul Ehrlich, who discovered a cure for syphilis. And which, of course, in 1940 was made at a time 
when the Nazi regime in Germany had systematically expunged all references of Ehrlich from any of its uh, public buildings, street signs, and uh, books referring to him. Jack Warner, who was the, um, the head of Warner Brothers in Hollywood, whereas his uh, two surviving brothers, Sam and Albert, were based in uh, New York looking after um, um, financing mostly. Jack, um, like the other predominantly Jewish heads of the studios, was very, as I said, wary of criticism that they were pursuing any supposedly Jewish agenda on the screen. In fact, a memorandum circulated by the Warners uh, stated, with regard to the then forthcoming Ehrlich movie, uh, that it would, and I quote here, be a mistake to make a political propaganda picture out of a biography which could stand on its own feet, quote unquote. So for that very reason, believe it or not, and it seems unforgivable today, but this is really the circumstances that existed at the time and under which um, these Jewish heads of studio worked. Um, for fears of anti-Semitism, the very words Jew and Jewish went entirely unmentioned in this movie, Dr. Ehrlich's Magic Bullet, a movie about a German-Jewish doctor, Paul Ehrlich. Furthermore, the anti-Semitism in Ehrlich's life was no more than hinted at, and then only once or twice in the film. And you know, uh, it wasn't only... Um, of fear of an anti-Semitic backlash, but working under the puritanical restraints of the Hayes Production Code, Warner's executives even considered not mentioning the word syphilis in the movie, a movie about a scientist who discovered a cure for it. <laughs> That's what things were like in the old studio system of the 30s and 40s. So when I say that uh, Warner's was the most um, socially relevant, the most socially conscious, the most reflective of reality, it must uh, be taken in the context of a world, of a uh, form of entertainment that was generally quite resistant to acknowledgments of real world, especially contemporary situations. You know, when it, come, when it came to running the studio, um, Harry in New York, the older brother and president of Warner Brothers, and Jack, who was uh, head of the studio in, Los in, uh, in California, in Hollywood, they, they, they were often at odds, but they did, they did share one quality, actually a couple. They worked hard, and they were quite parsimonious. <laughs> they, counted, they counted every penny, penny that came in. Um, and they not only did not they not only drove themselves hard they they um they drove their crews hard they they especially drove the actors who worked for them hard uh, which um was something that figures like Olivia de Havilland and uh, Betty Davis soon came to resent um but like i said to their credit they themselves worked um they uh, really quite hard then as well but uh, in any case, their seeming lack of concern for their own employees stood in stark contrast to the many films, decry you know, decrying the ill treatment of people. 
Um, so that that was a bit controversial and um, and it created some tension with uh, um, their biggest stars. But most especially, um, um, the reason that um, that the brothers Warners and uh, people like Davis and Haviland fell out with them is because that um, they were on very exclusive seven-year contracts. In fact, this was true of um, all the major studios. Um, these exclusive seven-year contracts, they tightly bound their biggest stars to the studios who decreed in every single case what films they could and could not make, and in some cases would loan them out to other studios to make um, films there. And they really didn't have much to say in what films they got to make, even 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 really big stars like Davis and de Havilland. Um, the first to mutiny was Betty Davis, uh, unwilling, <laughs> believe it or not. Uh, well, it's certainly believable uh, that she was unwilling to do so, but she, she was uh, meant to play a lumberjack of all things in in the film, but instead fled to England and filed a lawsuit against Warner's in the British courts, questioning Warner's ability to force her to appear in a film without her consent. But she lost. However, in 1943, Olivia de Havilland's contract with Warner's expired. Uh, but the studio, who um, really valued her uh, and wanted to keep her, they claimed that in refusing an earlier role and having been suspended because of that, de Havilland had incurred a six-month penalty and so supposedly still owed the company a further six months. For de Havilland, uh, who had endured what she considered to be seven years of mostly substandard roles, this was just too much. The case took uh, two years, going all the way to California's Supreme Court, but de Havilland finally won, and in doing so, uh, basically ended the studio's ability to bind stars into exclusive contracts. And uh, in retrospect, for most film historians, it really was the first major crack in the studio system. Um, you know, their anti-fascism aside, the Warners were, by natural inclination, like I, I think it's fair to say all people made good, um, conservative in many regards. They were suspicious of unions, they decried taxation, and they opposed, to a greater or lesser extent, government regulation of trade, or fair trade as they would see it. But when Franklin Roosevelt announced his candidacy for president in the early 1930s, they jumped on the Democratic bandwagon, the only studio owners to do so. And you know, you can feel, you can feel the support um, of FDR by Warners throughout the subsequent decade, really up to, uh, up to his death in 1944, in fact. In the early 1930s, the Warners had still been seen as outsiders in Hollywood and by their peers as upstarts who capsized the status quo with their conversion to sound. So they were more than happy to break with the other studios when the political winds in Washington had shifted. 
The country is in chaos, said Harry, and we need a change. And so Jack even became chairman of the motion picture division of the Roosevelt for President campaign. And after Roosevelt's election, the Los Angeles chairman of his National Recovery Act. I mean, today, no movie studio would dare do something so openly for a candidate or sitting president. But during the 1930s, Warners did it with enthusiasm, turning movies like G-Men from 1935 into an advertisement for the efficiency of the new FBI. And even dance numbers um, to create pictograms of the president's face in the Busby Berkeley movie from 1933, Footlight Parade. Even 10 years later in Yankee Doodle Dandy, they, they turned FDR into a movie character. So keep in mind, while social critique was often, was often present in their movies, it was always done under the rubric of a general patriotism and the FDR New Deal administration. Though the brothers later strayed from the democratic fold, they returned after Pearl Harbor, more eager than ever to display their patriotism. In fact, Warner Brothers during the 1940s made more films about the war than any other movie studio, uh, counting uh, among such titles as Captains of the Clouds, 1942, Air Force, 1943, Action in the North Atlantic, 1943, and Objective Burma, 1945. But easily, easily the most memorable wartime anti-Nazi movie is Casablanca, right? Especially as with that uh, stirring scene when Victor Laszlo drowns out Major Strasser by leading Rick's orchestra in a rousing rendition of La Marseillaise. Accordingly, when Roosevelt needed a favor in 1943, Warner Brothers was the studio that he went to. He wanted a sympathetic portrait of America's Soviet ally brought to the screen, and he asked Jack if Warner's could make a film of Mission to Moscow, Joseph E. Davies' account of his ambassadorship in Russia. Jack, starstruck as ever by the commander-in-chief, eagerly accepted, though the resulting picture did poorly at the box office and received mixed reviews from critics. But after the war, Warner Brothers began a slow decline. A new freedom was in the air, and executives and producers like Daryl Zanuck and then Hal Wallace began to set off on their own, not to mention many of the stars. Both stars and production people, executives, were setting up their own independent production companies at this time. But more significant was the antitrust lawsuit brought by the Justice Department against all the major Hollywood studios in the late 1940s, which was ironic for the Warner Brothers because they had moved out west decades earlier to escape the confines of the Edison Trust. For years, studios like Warner Brothers, MGM, Paramount, and RKO had controlled not only the means of production, meaning the sound stages, the equipment, etc., but also the means of distribution and exhibition itself, meaning the movie theaters. So what they had been doing was selling off their lower quality films, their so-called B-pictures, um, but to do this, this, 
the studios utilized what was known as block booking, the practice of bundling an attractive film with generally four subpar efforts, and so forcing the theaters to take the group as a package. The Justice Department believed that this constituted a restraint of fair trade. And the fight went all the way to the Supreme Court, which ruled in the government's favor. The court decreed that the studios would have to divest themselves of their theater chains. The decision, now remembered as the Paramount Decree, knocked the legs out from under the studio system in one bold stroke. Harry's collection of movie theaters that he had been building for almost two decades was stripped from his possession, and as a result, the Warner Kingdom was effectively cut in half. Um, not only that, but tension among the brothers, especially Harry and Jack, uh, had been growing worse in recent years. I mean, they were... They were, they were opposites in nearly everything. Harry was modest, somewhat um, staid in personality, very responsible, um, stay-at-home family man. Whereas Jack, Jack loved attention. He loved parties. He loved going out. He, he loved to be the center of attention. Um, perhaps something he got used to as having been the youngest uh, child in the family of, of ten um, way back in the very late uh, 19th century. By the mid-50s, relations between Harry and Jack had soured so much that the two were by now barely even speaking to each other, even, even timing their lunch break so as not to run into one another in the studio dining hall. When they did meet, they fought at every turn. Now, with their personal relationship in tatters and their, their business mm, as unstable financially as it had ever been, I mean, it had really been up and up since the 1910s with regards um, to the success financially of Warner Brothers. But by now, uh, by, by the mid-50s, um, things were beginning to impinge upon that success. First, um, they had been thrown off course um, by losing um, the exclusivity of seven-year contracts with their biggest stars, something faced by the other studios as well, and as faced um, by the other studios who were also suffering these financial, these new financial concerns, they were um, they were rocked they were rocked by the effect of the Paramount decree, and of course by a third force, the arrival of television. Um, so the Warner brothers, the surviving three brothers, they began for the first time to seriously consider selling their studio. Albert, Albert especially wanted out. He was already semi-retired in Florida and was convinced that if they waited, uh, waited any longer that the, the stock would further depreciate. There was just one catch, though. None of them, none of the three surviving brothers, could sell their shares unless the others did. And this is where it gets tricky. Though now in his mid-70s and in shaky health, Harry was reluctant to give up his hold on power. Jack, however, found them a deal so sweet that even Harry couldn't refuse. 
a friend of Jack, a Boston banker by the name of Serge Semenko, headed a group of investors who agreed to pay Warner Brothers $220 million for their combined 800,000 shares of Warner Brothers stock and signing the deal in May of 1956. But by July, it was, it was clear that Jack had pulled off a double cross, making his own separate deal with Semenko. After selling his shares to the banker, Jack bought them back right away, all 200,000 shares worth, including his, the shares sold by his brothers. And so making him again, or making him for the first time, but, only, but solely uh, the single largest stockholder in the company and not having to share any of his power with his brothers. He was now the only guy in charge. So after 53 years, Jack was, was, was finally the president of the company. He held all the power and president of the company was certainly a title that he had coveted for decades. When Harry read of his brother's betrayal, in variety no less, he suffered a stroke on the spot. He was out of the hospital and walking within a week um, with the aid of a cane, but he soon suffered two more strokes, leaving him speechless and wheelchair-bound. But even before his voice was taken from him, Harry had refused to talk any longer with Jack. After the details of the Semenko deal became clear, Albert too um, refused to ever speak with his younger brother again. You know, a great irony of all this is that by the time Jack became president of the studio, there was really not that much power left to hold on to. Though, I mean, everywhere in Hollywood, production was down by the end of the 50s, um, as were profits. Actors um, were no longer tied to the studios, but to talent agencies now, the, really the new, the new big um, important forces in Hollywood, agencies like MCA. Um, television was um, beginning to exert um, a considerable influence over the industry. And so, um, although studios like Warner's continued to finance movies, they had very little control any longer over the content. They were little more than sound stages for rent, really, at this time, by this time. Um, they, they did still control distribution, but with block uh, booking removed, they were no longer able to ensure that the profits of their hits would outweigh the losses of their flops. And throughout the 60s, Warner Brothers had a lot of flops. Um, they were clinging to trends really to old trends um, that were beginning to um, to lose their validity especially the musical the musical was no longer the power that it had been uh, especially in the 1950s and by the 60s it had become really old, old hat this was the uh, the era of rock and roll and um, 
not the um, the stage musical based, um, you know, on the Broadway plays of old. So films like uh, Doctor Doolittle, Camelot, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, Warner Brothers movies, all they bombed in the late '60s and um, brought Warner Brothers to the brink of financial collapse. It really was a turbulent decade. And um, because of that, Jack could really no longer hold on to power. He was getting old, very old himself. Um, and so in the end, he really found it impossible to withstand the vagaries of the modern industry. So in exchange for the company that he and his brothers had started in their dining room in Ohio 63 years before, he accepted a sum of $320 million, uh, uh, certainly a sizable sum, but one that someone said he could have easily doubled if it had a savvy negotiator like his brother Harry to make the arrangement for him. Sadly, that was very much impossible by that time. So on Halloween evening, 1969, Jack took his Bentley for one last excursion around the Warner Brothers lot before heading out the gate one last time and going home. But as a film goer, a film lover, a film buff, it's, it's not hard to feel that we owe the Warner Brothers collectively, all four of them, a great debt of gratitude for the many, many treasures to emerge from the studio in its heyday really their gift to posterity. Thank you very much, everyone. I hope you've enjoyed this conclusion to my two-part series called The Rise and Fall of the Brothers Warner, and that you will join me next week for Lockdown Viewing, in which I will provide some recommendations for what to watch and where to watch them. Remember, if you have any comments or questions, you can best reach me at stomlinson at codesaintluke.org or by means of the library's Facebook page, or even by calling the library at 514-485-6900 and leaving me a message. Until then, this has been Stephen Tomlinson of the Cote St. Luke Public Library. Bye-bye for now. Well, that is today's episode of the Cote St. Luke Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Thank you to our guests, and thank you to you for listening here today. The show is produced by me, Daryl Levine. The telephone broadcasting service and podcast was launched as a way to get content into your home during the pandemic period. As you know, we had to stop our events at the library and at Parks and Recreation. So we hope you're enjoying the podcast as a sort of a virtual way of getting the content to you so you can hear your favorite speakers at home. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. Every rating and review helps others to find the show. Have a great day.